Well, good morning. Oh, come on now. Good morning. There we go. All right. <laughs> this morning we have a very familiar text, um, the feeding of the 5,000. One of the few miracles um, that's recorded across all the gospel stories. Um, each of the gospels are written by different people to different audiences for different purposes. And so not everything is included in each one. John himself in his gospel made the declaration that if all the things that Jesus had done and said were to have been written down, the whole world could not contain all of the books that would have been filled with the things that had happened. But this story is important enough that all of the gospel writers want to relay it. And that's significant. That's a really important thing. We've all, if you've been in church much at all in your life, have been very familiarized with this story. Um, and so you kind of pause and go, well, what, what can we really glean from this? We've heard it so much and we've seen it so much. But to start, uh, I want us to note the participation in the ministry of Jesus. If you were with us last time, Jesus sent the 12 out without him. And he sent them out to go and to preach the good news and to drive out demons, to heal people with sickness. He empowered them to to accomplish these things. They came back and reported what they had done, what they had seen. Uh, They participated again, observing Jesus after they got back, doing some things. And then it says that when the day was ending... As after they get back is the is the natural reading of this. And he had been teaching the crowds and the crowds were welcoming him. They gathered him, as we see in the verses right before that. Uh, the 12 came to Jesus. They said, you need to send this crowd away. Why? Why do we need to send this crowd away? So that they can go into surrounding villages, countryside, find lodging, get something to eat, because we're in a desolate place. Now, I have to cut a lot of slack to the disciples here. Jesus has done a lot of really cool things. To put it very lightly. He's raised people from the dead. He's cast out demons. He's healed the sick. He's challenged the religious authority of the day. He's done a lot of cool stuff. But here they are, seated in a desert place a place where there's nothing, you know, there's, there's no, no access to towns, to communities, to um, uh, places to sleep, lodging, food. They've come to gather in a large empty place. And it's getting late. And it's a dangerous place to be out late. Thieves and the criminals come out late, the wild animals Come out late. There's a reason why when there were large town centers, they would build a wall around it. They put a gate on it. And basically people were to come in at nightfall. And by the time you got in, they'd close the gate. It was to help keep violent criminals and violent animals away from largely populated places. And the, the, the disciples are actually being incredibly sensible here. Hey, it's about time for us to wrap this up. If these people are going to get somewhere safe and they're going to get somewhere keeps the elements and the animals and the criminals away from them. And if they're going to get something to eat because they haven't eaten all day, probably about time for them to go. 
The day had been long and the crowd was large and the disciples identified a problem and offered a solution. This is what you want when you're in leadership and you have people that you're training up to take over leadership behind you. That's what Jesus has been doing. He's been the leader. He's been teaching these guys, hey, there's going to be a ministry that you're going to be about. There's going to be a work that you're going to do. Here's how we do this. This, all right, I want you to go out and give it a test run. I want you to try it. All right, they come back. Hey, it was pretty successful. Things went pretty well. Okay, that's great. Let's do some more ministry together. All right, we're doing the ministry together. Hey, hey, Jesus, I think it's time for these people to go home. You, you taught us how to identify problems. You taught us how to suggest solutions. That's what we're doing. We're taking the leadership thing really seriously. And Jesus throws them a big old fat curveball. Their recommendation is a really good one. I mean, if you were in any modern boardroom and they're like trying to advance plan for the way the, the business should go. And somebody says, hey, we probably ought to have a cutoff and we already have a contingency plan. And we probably everybody in the room would go, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Good job. Jesus says, hey, I'll tell you what, instead of doing the thing that seems to make the most sense, why don't you guys just give them something to eat and let them stay here? (laughs) Gotta love it. Jesus re-emphasizes their participation in what's going on. You is emphatic here. You give them something to eat. To which the disciples immediately go, how are we going to pull this off? I love the, 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 the profound logic behind it. In verse 13, Jesus, you give them something to eat. And they say, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless perhaps we go buy food for all of these people. And then it gives us why they were so concerned about it. For there were about 5,000 men there. Which, by the way, it's really improper that we call this the feeding of the 5,000. Certainly some of those men were day laborers who weren't there with their families. Certainly some of those people were probably single men who weren't there because they didn't have families. But some of these would have been entire family units that would have been there with a husband and a wife and probably their kids there with them out traveling to hear this traveling preacher, Jesus. And they would have left their homes and wherever they were and they would have gone as a family to go and see him. And so a lot of scholars speculate that there probably was close to upwards of 10,000 or more people there. I'm kind of like the disciples on this one. We have five loaves of bread and two fish. I'll just be straight. That barely feed the dancy house. That barely feed daddy dancy. Depending on how big the fish are and how big the loaves of bread are. I'm just being real. Because at the end of this, it says they all ate and were satisfied. They didn't eat and just get by. They were full. And so I see where the disciples are coming from on this. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. We just gave a perfectly sound idea about how to take care of these people. And now you want us to do something like way beyond here. And figure out a way to take five loaves of bread and two fish and feed ten plus thousand people. What are are we going to do? The disciples do not see a solution to this new challenge. And so what does Jesus do? He does what Jesus only can do. He works a great miracle. 
In 14 through 16, the part of the story that we're most familiar with, have them sit down and eat in groups of about 50 each. And they all sat down. He took the five loaves, the two fish. He looked up to heaven. He blessed it. He broke it. And he kept giving to the disciples who set it before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces that they collected left over when they picked them up, they had 12 baskets full. It's remarkable. Like we've, we've heard this so many times. I mean, I just want to, I just want to kind of get a feel for this room. If I went down to the local grocery shop, Brookshire's or wherever, and I bought five loaves of bread and I bought a couple of fish and obviously some manner of cooking the fish, we're not going sushi grade, uh, tuna here. So, and I started preparing this food and I said, you know what? We're going to fix everybody in this room right now. Just a couple hundred of us that are here lunch. With this. It'd be like, oh, wow. That was crazy. That food just kept spreading around and a couple hundred people were able to eat off of that food. That was wild. Like it would blow our minds just as a couple hundred people. Ten thousand or more people probably. Eight were satisfied and they had twelve basketfuls left over. Not picnic baskets. Baskets. They were these little three-foot-sized baskets that you would carry up on your shoulders. They had 12 of those left over. I think we've heard this story so much that we're kind of not in awe of how crazy this actually was. What Jesus pulls off here. But when we begin investigating this story in relation to the rest of redemptive history, it becomes even more profound. Luke uses a phrase here where Jesus commands the crowd to sit down in groups of about 50 each. And it's an incredibly unique phrase. This phrase is used only once in the Greek Old Testament. Luke likely would have had access to the Septuagint in the Greek Old Testament. Luke, being a Gentile, probably did not have linguistically access to the Hebrew language like some of the disciples may have had. And so he's using for his studies the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this phrase, sit them down in groups of 50s, is used only one time and one time only. And it's in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 13. I want to read to you from the English version of that now. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 13 says this. It's a story of Obadiah meeting Elijah. You want to talk about a cool meeting there. Just throw that out there. No offense to any of my friends listening online. I didn't go to seminary with guys as cool as Obadiah and Elijah. You know, like what most of those classes have been like. Has it not been told to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? That I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave. That's the translation of that phrase. And provided them with bread and with water. Luke is borrowing this phrase of have them sit down by fifties from the language of the miracle Elijah did to be able to supply enough bread for the surviving 100 prophets of the Lord to not starve to death while they were hiding from Jezebel. But it gets even more profound than that. The miraculous feeding with leftovers is also borrowed from a, uh, from a miraculous work that Elisha did in 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 4. Verses 42 through the end of the chapter. It says, Now a man came from 
Baal-shalashia and brought the man of God bread and the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And he said, give them to the people that they may eat. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar to what we just read. Give them to the people to eat. And his attendant said, what will I set before a hundred men? Now, he just showed up with 20 loaves of bread to try and feed 100 people. And the prophet said, you feed them with your 20 loaves of bread. And he says, this is not enough food for them. How, how am I going to pull this off? But he said to him, give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them and they ate and some of them and, and they had some left over according to the word of the Lord. What Luke is doing here is he's creating an allusion to the two great prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. And he's making a declaration about there was a time when Elijah took some prophets and broke them into groups of 50s and fed them and kept them alive, even though they probably should have died, though they were found to be in a desolate place and didn't have access to food. There was a time when Elisha was trying to feed and meet the needs of other people, and they had not only the miracle to feed the people they had, but they had enough leftover to use for later. Luke's use of the phrases and the presence of leftovers uh, from the from this miracle that we have in the New Testament is a demonstration. This is what Luke's getting at, and he's getting at this in every passage that he writes. Jesus is greater than the miracle working prophets of the Old Testament. Because Elijah only had to feed 100 people. Elisha only had to feed 100 people. Elisha had 20 loaves of bread to pull it off. Jesus had to feed over 10,000 people with less material and more leftovers. Jesus is greater than Elijah and Elisha combined. And listen, this would not have been lost on this crowd of people. You say, Philip, you're stretching here. This is a predominantly Jewish crowd that this miracle happens with. They would have been very well in tune with the stories of miracles from their own Old Testament. They would have remembered that Elijah kept alive the prophets under the curse of, of Jezebel. They would have remembered this. They would remember that Elisha met the needs of those in the, in, the, in the caves and that he did a miracle where the bread expanded and they had food left over. This would not have been lost maybe on the crowd because they wouldn't have known about the leftovers perhaps, but certainly not on the disciples who afterwards were the ones that collect all the leftovers and the ones who were assigned to break the groups into 50 and Jesus' method of teaching them things that other people don't get to find out about after the fact. This would not have been lost on them. Jesus is greater than. He's greater than. And this is the point that he's trying to get across. Now, what I like about how this is set up in the actual miracle is that Jesus takes the bread in his hands and it says that he looks up to the heavens and he blesses it and he breaks it. He blesses the bread, he breaks the bread, and then he starts giving the bread to his disciples for his disciples to take it and set it before the people. Does this sound like anything else you've ever heard of in the Bible? This really is a pop quiz. 
the Last Supper, which is a foreshadowing of what? What's the Lord's table all about? Crucifixion. Jesus looks up to the heavens. He blesses the thing that he's about to break. And then he gives it to his apostles and then commands them to give it to the other people. That's what he just did when he sent them on mission. He said, I want you to go and I want you to preach the kingdom and I want you to do these great works and I'm giving you authority to do this. And then they come back and they experience something that they don't know that they can do. We can't feed all these people. And we hear this morning about work in India. We hear this morning about things in other parts of Asia. We hear this morning about the decline of the church in Europe and America. And when you really look at the statistical numbers, the number of people who have no access to the Bible and their known tongue at all, the number of people who have never been exposed to the name of Jesus at all, the growing expansion of things like Islam and secular humanism and other th- kinds of things like that around the world. If Christians were to take a step back and look at these numbers, we might be tempted to go, there's no way we can do what you're asking us to do. But Jesus is greater than. And it's not by consequence that the language that Luke uses here is very similar to the language of the crucifixion. What is Jesus regularly doing while he's on the cross? He's looking up to the heavens. He's calling out to the Father. He's calling out blessings on the people even though they're cursing him. He's allowing his body to be broken. He didn't, they didn't break his body. He allowed his body to be broken. He is the one that broke it. No one, he says, takes my life from me. I lay my life down on my own accord that I might take it up again. This is Jesus' own words. And so just like in this moment where he's lifting up the bread to heaven and he's blessing it and he's breaking it and he's distributing it, just like at the last table where he's blessing it, he's breaking it, distributing it, just is true the gospel. Jesus has broken it for us. He has given it to us and now he commissions us to go and give it to other people. And friends, I want to tell you, the gospel is so incredible. The gospel is so amazing. The gospel is so expansive. Jesus is so much greater than that. The gospel will always have more than enough. There's going to be plenty of leftovers, if you will. You never get to the end of feasting on the gospel and go, you know, I'm still a little hungry. No. No. The people ate And were satisfied. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. The psalmist speaks of this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Friends, everything else in life. Everything else in life will leave you wanting. You want power? You're going to want more. You want position? You're going to want one higher. You want prestige? You're going to want more fame and notoriety. You want wealth? There's always one more dollar to be made. You want health? You want accolades? You want applause? There's always more that can be done. Always. Always. And it will leave you Wanting. This is why we hear about people's lives spiraling out of control. 
drugs and alcohol and all kinds of other things because they try to find their satisfaction in something that cannot satisfy and they keep going to the next and the next and the next and the next. Friends, it's no different from everything else in our lives that's not the gospel. The difference is, is that when we taste and see that the Lord is good, when we eat the broken bread of heaven, when we embrace the manna that God has given, we never walk away from that table going, "Mm, yeah, I really didn't like that. That wasn't quite enough. Not if we've truly tasted and feasted on the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, Philip, there's lots of times I'm dissatisfied in Christ. Friend, it has absolutely nothing to do with Christ and everything to do with your appetite and mine. This is the beauty of what has happened here. Jesus in this miracle, it's not about feeding a whole bunch of people and us being in awe that thousands upon thousands of people ate off of so little and there was left over. What this story is truly about is Jesus is greater than and he and his gospel are the only thing that can truly satisfy. Because friends, I will tell you straight, while these people were satisfied today, guess what? They were going to go home and go to sleep and wake up. And the next morning they're going to say, man, I'm hungry. I'd love some breakfast. This meal was not going to stay with them. The difference is, is that Jesus makes a promise. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, when they find their, their feasting at the Lord's table for their, their righteousness... Not my own righteousness, but his righteousness. You will eat and will be satisfied. You won't keep looking for your next meal. You will be satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone. And this is a marvelous thing. It's a marvelous thing that he's teaching us here. And I want you to note at the end, and this is really important. In 16, the second half of 16 to the end of the chapter, it says that there were 12 baskets of leftovers. The big baskets, not the little baskets. That's the language that's used here. 16, second half of the verse. It says, he blessed them, he broke them, kept giving to the disciples, set before the people, and they ate, and they were satisfied. And the broken pieces that they had left over were picked up, and there were 12 baskets full. Don't forget, if you weren't with us last time, don't forget, go back and reread it, verses 1 through 11. The disciples had just come from a very lean mission. Jesus told them, don't take a bag. Don't take a change of shoes. Don't, like, he, he kept walking through all. Don't take extra tunic. Don't take, you know, go with the bare necessities, barely enough to get by. Don't take anything extra with you. They had just come back off of a very lean mission. Had to be a lot of faith and a lot of trust and a lot of reception of of graciousness of other people to be able to do what it was that they were needing to do. And that was them needing to be ministered to by other people. They were, yes, sharing the gospel. Yes, they were casting out demons. But they had to find somebody hospitable to, to meet their needs for them. Friends, I tell you the truth. When you're ministering to other people, when you're ministering to others rather than waiting for ministry to happen to you, they had more than they ever needed. Not one of them came back from that lean mission and said, we didn't have enough. Not one of them at the end of this great miracle that Jesus did looked around and said, yeah, but we haven't eaten yet either. You know, look, we got 12 baskets full, one for each of you, more than you could ever consume. 
When you are ministering to others, that's when you have more than you ever need. Not when others are ministering to you. And that's a really contrary concept. I would think I'd be more blessed the more people are doing for me. No, friend, you're more blessed the more you're doing for other people. That's where the true blessing comes in. That's when you find that you have more than what you need. True blessing doesn't come when others minister us, but when we minister to other people. And it's one of the reasons why I give this advice to people who are really going through it. They're going through hard times. They're going through difficult times. They're broken and they're sad and they're despaired and they're depressed and they have anxiety and they're anxious and, and they're struggling and they're suffering and, they're, and their uh, emotions are all over the place and they just can't really find their footing underneath them and they just feel broken and downtrodden and they say, what should I do? And obviously, you need to turn your face to the Lord. And you need to cry out to him and you need to beg for mercy. You need to orient yourself toward the God of heaven for he's the only one that can truly meet your needs. And while you're doing that, you need to find someone to minister to. I'm in no condition to minister to someone else. What do you mean you're in no condition to minister to someone else? Paul did some of the greatest ministry he ever did locked in a prison cell. Friends. There's two kinds of water that we have listed out in the scripture. You have the Jordan River that flows through Israel. And on its banks where it flows, it's lush and vibrant and green. Because it receives a source of water into it and it itself pushes out and feeds something else. Vibrancy occurs there. When I am ministered to and in turn minister to others, life happens. Then you also have a pretty significant body of water there in that same region called the Dead Sea. And nothing can live in it. Nothing can live in it. Why not? Why can't anything live in it? Because it receives water. And it has no outlet for the water that it receives. And when water can only come in, but cannot go out, it only produces death. It's stagnant and it's stale and it kills everything around it. Friends, this is how our lives are meant to be. You want vibrancy of life? You want joy and peace and delight from a human perspective? Don't just be one who consumes. Be one that also pours out. This is what Jesus was trying to teach them. Don't just constantly let people minister to you. Minister, I need somebody to feed me. I need somebody to bless me. I need somebody to do this for me. I need to be able to do this. And I need to be, and I need people. I need, I need, I need. At some point, you have to then transition to, and in what way can I be a blessing to the other? How can I take the good gifts that I have received through the gospel and through time shared and through time spent and through the efforts of other and through spiritual growth and development and the sacrifices that other people have made for me to help meet the needs of my life spiritually? How can I then in turn meet the same spiritual needs in other people's lives? How can I do this? This is what Jesus is attempting practically to teach these men. Of how he wants ministry in his name to look. 
Ministry in the Christian church is not about sitting and soaking and souring. It's not. It's about being used by God and the gifts that he has given you for the benefit of other believers. And when we all do this in balance, it's not that we all do the same things. There's certain ministries that some of us are a part of and others aren't. And that's fine. That's wonderful. That's good. That's balance. But when we do this, no one is left out from the glory and the graciousness of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine, if you will, in your spiritual imagination as we close, Jesus says, all right, I want you to have all these tens of thousands of people sit down in groups of 50 so that we can start spreading out the miraculous bounty that's about to happen from heaven. This this physical picture of the actual gospel itself. And he's going and he's distributing. He's handing out and he's handing out and he's handing out. And they're, and they're, patting, they're like amazed. Wow, the stuff, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. And one of the disciples gets to one of the groups of 50 and they realize they're hungry too. And they stop and they just eat whatever's given to them rather than giving it to that group of 50. And that group of 50 gets left out. This is not how the story goes. Not one time do one of the apostles that we are aware of, based on how the story is told to us, stop and go, hey, Jesus, when do we get to eat? Not one time. Not one time to say, hey, when do we get a little break, a little breather, a little, little, when do I get some me time? Our world is really keen on me time. If you're married with small and middle-aged and I hear even older children, I'm getting really discouraged by some of you folks with older kids that don't even live in your house anymore, talking about how much time they still consume from you and they don't even live with you anymore. It's not encouraging to me. Um, but if you got small kids at the house, me, listen, friends, me time's a fantasy invented by single people without children. <laughs> that they're trying to impose on the real world and it's just not real. It's not true. There's no such thing as me time. It's just not. It's not real. You get your me time simultaneous to when you're giving others their their time. I am blessed by God when I am used as a blessing for someone else. And I should find my encouragement and my enrichment and my satisfaction in the fact that God is using me to benefit the other. That's what the gospel is. Do we not understand that? That that's the that is that is the the human on human expression of the gospel apart from the doctrinal declaration of repentance of sin. What is the core of the incarnation? The other gave up something for the benefit of someone else. That's what the incarnation is. I'm going to do something that this person can't do for themselves so that it might be a benefit for them even if it doesn't immediately benefit me. That's the gospel. That's exactly what Jesus did. And it says that because he did that, he received from God a name above every other name. And then what does it say of us when we behave the way that Jesus behaves in our expression of the gospel? We get to be partakers of his glory. 
Say, Philip, when I try to, there's no benefit. Like I try to reach out to these people and there's no response. And I try to share the gospel with them and nobody responds. And I try to share these insights with them and there's just pushback. And I try to do this and the people are unappreciative and they're not thankful. And friend, if we are living for the approval of men, we will always be dissatisfied with the way the kingdom looks. Because the kingdom is not about the approval of men. The kingdom... Is about the approval of God. And what does Jesus say? As much as you have done for the least of any of these. You have done it for me. Lord, Lord, when did we see you naked and in prison and thirsty and hungry? When you did it for the least of these. You did it for me. Great is your reward. Where? In heaven. Which here in just a minute, this is not a guilt trip. It's just a remarkable providential segue. You're going to be hearing about some opportunities of ways to serve in our church. That are not normal ways that people like to serve in our church. Really didn't plan on it being this way. Seriously. Like originally this announcement you're going to hear in a minute was supposed to be in the middle of the worship service. And it got moved around because we were doing the thing with India. So. Philip's not comprising a guilt trip on anybody. But just when you hear about opportunities to serve here in a minute, don't forget about the sermon that we just walked through. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you lay out not for us, not for us just doctrinal principles about what the gospel is and about who Jesus is and about how we might be saved. But you also lay out for us practical principles of how we're to be involved in ministry and we're to be involved in the kingdom and we're to be involved in the work that you have given to us, Father. We are participants, not because we're intelligent, not because we're capable, not because we know things, not because we're exceptionally gifted in our own natural strength, but Father, we are participants in the building of the kingdom of God because you have graciously, through Jesus Christ and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, given us the distinct privilege of blessing other people. Father, let us not squander the opportunity because your son Jesus is greater than and his gospel always is more than enough. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand at this time as we sing a song of response together.